0: One, two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what's up? What's good? How you holding up? I heard you you're trying to get your home workout on?
1: Yeah, man, I need to do something. I put on my COVID 19, you know what I'm saying? So I need to <laughs> I need need to roll that back a little bit.
0: My problem is I just packed up my scale. I didn't even wait. I didn't even step on it. I feel like I'm so out of shape. But I I finally quit CrossFit after all that you know, racist dust up. And then I suddenly realized that maybe it's a militaristic paramilitary organization that wasn't inviting me to the paramilitary boot camp.
1: Man, CrossFit's those boys the FBI was trying to warn Obama about.
0: (laughs) I was starting to get that feeling, starting to get that vibe. (laughs) But I don't know what to do next. Am I supposed to do mixed martial arts? Muay Thai? Yeah, Muay Thai, Krav Maga.
1: That's what all the... Everyone I know is doing Krav Maga. They're a Krav Maga expert now. I feel like for
0: some reason you won't be doing that one though. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll be doing Krav Maga too. I got an Ismaili friend who's doing Krav Maga. So I mean, you know, it's all the way out there. But I mean, anyway, so I was just wondering how you've been holding up. I mean, it's been crazy what? out here not getting out of the house. Yeah, I mean, New Orleans is doing well. Our mayor just put out a nice little
1: tweet, talking trash. Good old Latoya. She said, uh, New Orleans is an island in the South. She said, we have to do what we can to keep our people safe. I mean, you know, New Orleans always been king of the South. It's good to see that we're actually handling this COVID thing better than our, our peers, though.
0: I mean, we always thought New Orleans was falling behind our boys in, like, Houston, Atlanta. Madness. Yeah, but I think New Orleans was like, you think we can't
1: handle fifteen uh, percent unemployment? We got something for you, <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, dude. <clears throat> Which brings into another question. Just before we get into like some of the real topics today, I've been doing this crazy thing where I've been reading like black Marxist traditions from the late seventies, early eighties, and I had no idea that one of the largest debates out there. And I think we have a special understanding of this because we did come from New Orleans. Is this question of whether or not capitalism depends only on free wage labor or whether or not capitalism can coexist um, with feudal and plantation societies. And I feel like coming from New Orleans, we've always known that that we're not necessarily on a progression (laughs) towards completely free um, wage labor. That some of the, what we, what, older Marxists is sometimes called the older forms can persist well into the future
1: oh that's certainly true i think all, both of us often get that weird side eye when we explain our especially economic politics until people realize that we're from new orleans and they're like oh okay i see that that makes sense um but yeah that's very true like we've always kind of grown up in this fe- like semi-feudal aristocratic society in new orleans It's always been like that
0: And I think a lot of people have a hard time realizing that aristocracy one never went away and feudal feudal relationships never disappear and that they're likely to persist into the future.
1: Well feudal relationships are based upon actual familial like human relationships which which persist you know regardless of the superstructures around them I guess is the main point right I mean that's why we kind of have a lot of what's going on today I mean this is all You know, with Black Lives Matter and the police brutality, we'll get to this later. But you know, all of that's vestiges of the Civil War, right? And that's all because of human human relationships.
0: And I think that the problem of the Civil War in some ways I know I know that sounded like a digression, but some ways I think the problem of the civil war is still what haunts us today. Oh, hundred (laughs) percent. And I think the question I mean the question of the civil war in some ways was exactly that question, right? Could you maintain I mean at the time relationships of enslavement or feudal relationships in a capitalist society? Or did we need to make way for free labor? And I think what many of us have like, have not understood about America is that the compromise we made was that we would try to do both at the same time, right? We would try to maintain some of these older relationships or what were perceived to be older relationships at the same time as we ran a wage labor-based industrial economy. Well, yeah, people
1: remember the the death of the Whigs and their, you know, internal destruction, basically, because of that central argument that you're having right now, right? Is it possible for these two to coexist at the same time? And even after the Civil War, that was a big debate in the Republican Party. Like, what should we do with the situation? Like, we've won now, but should we actually abolish
0: slavery? Hmm. And what would it mean to abolish slavery? Who was going to work? I mean, I actually, it was only, I think it was at your wedding, uh... That I actually met, you know, Nafisa, because she's not from New Orleans, um, was like, oh, I want to go out and see some of these, like, plantations. And so, you know, we went to, what's that famous one that everybody's going to now? Oh, man, you did that Whitney Plantation shit? The Whitney shit? Plantation tour. Oh,
1: uh, you would do that.
0: And I don't know if the Whitney itself was the most, was the highlight of the tour. As much as, like, just driving through the, um... Uh, you know, you drive past, you drive down the bayou, and then you see like basically all these chemical plants. And then all around the Whitney, you realize that actually these are still working sugar fields. And you're kind of like, oh, the real tour is outside of the Whitney, right? The real tour is everything that's around the Whitney. I got a tour with that
1: growing up around here. I have some friends that uh, own like a plantation out there. And uh, I mean, they still have sugarcane and all that, man. It's, you know, it's a thing. It's not like they. It's not like they sold it to anybody, right? It's not like this is a public sugarcane land now. I guess that's the, that was the other compromise. It's only so social you can make it. Like, what what do people think happened to those sugarcane farms?
0: I think people don't understand, right? And the people don't understand that like the, the types of labor involved in producing, these necessities, um, still persist. I mean, sometimes it's funny to even read like leftist. And, like, you know, they're willing to concede that, you know, maybe in other countries, they'll they'll say something like, maybe in South Africa, unfree labor persisted under apartheid. Or, you know, maybe abroad, there's still serfdom and, 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 what do you call it, and feudalism. And you're like, at home, I think there's still a certain amount of a feudal order. I mean, I've been struck a lot by that photograph. I know it's kind of a random photograph from St. Louis which just as another aside, I have to say St. Louis I think is one of the most racist cities I've ever been to. Like I definitely went there only like once to hang out near Washington University St. Louis, which is such a pretty campus. Oh, it's it's beautiful. I've I've been there to visit. I definitely felt like I had a get out moment. I was there visiting my friend who's like Muslim and wears a hijab and it was just like I was like, man, you must have been suffering out here. I feel like the black people didn't like her, the white people didn't like her. It was just like, what is going on out here? But I was not surprised, let's say, when Ferguson happened in the suburbs of St. Louis. You're like, I think this stuff has been going on for some time out here. I mean, not to say that it's not going on all around the country.
1: You're talking about uh, Guns and Rosé, the couple that came out to defend their, uh, their home, mis- misbrandishing weapons with their fingers on the trigger?
0: yeah dude i was like you know they got the khaki shorts on the, the pink polo shirt the the ar-15 and then she i don't know what she thinks she's doing with the minigun. well she was dressed like the hamburglar too let's address that <laughs> <laughs> and you're kind of like what kind of funeral estate is she standing on dude i mean she got the marble the manicured lawns i heard it was a private street so they felt they the- were well within their rights
1: one of the best statements uh, one of our I think it was one of our friends I don't know exactly who it was though so I don't want to quote him but he, that, that I saw someone say about this was that she's not pointing at anyone in particular. she's just pointing at her fear and that's what's most interesting about it. They, it's not that they feel that there's a particular threat. it's just they've they've been conditioned to believe that there is a general threat. I'm, I spoke to some of my friends about it family members even about this, and they were like, well, they it looked like the mob was coming for them, so they wanted
0: to defend their property. I'm like, it looked like the mob was coming for them. They were like, I well, mean... one, I think there's a lot to be said in there. I mean, I've been surprised by how much this idea of defending your property um, lays at the basis of all this fear. But what kind of property are they defending? I mean, if you want to have a picture of American inequality, do you just see the size of that, like, mansion that they're defending? Well, the funny part is they're personal injury attorneys. So,
1: in general... That's not the type of attorney that people get angry with. Actually, they're the type of people that get you pretty good settlements, to be honest, right? And they must have been getting a lot of people pretty good settlements to buy a house like that. I mean, have you seen it? It's like a Italian Renaissance style home, with
0: like, it's pretty crazy. I was doing an internship, I think in 2002 for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And I had a great roommate, Omega guy. He took me to some Omega parties, really taught me at Howard like what I was missing out on at, at Columbia. Showed you the ropes. Showed me the ropes, for sure. And then he, he handed me that book, the classic, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read it, you know, blew my mind, but I was young. And then at the same time, he explained to me that he wanted to be a personal injury attorney. And he was like, look, my mentor is a personal injury attorney. He's like, how do you get the private plane? I mean, now he has a very successful law firm. was a big Gullum supporter in Florida. And so, you know, it's like, I think we just don't understand. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's becoming obvious, but I don't understand how, as Americans, we missed it for so long. Just how much money is floating around out there and how little money is going into so many people's hands.
1: Well, your your boy, Andrew Yang, has been going off recently, actually. I follow him on Twitter. And uh, I don't fully agree with his theory of the case, as you know. But he did say something that made a lot of sense. He was just saying that, you know, money is also an invented concept and the, and the fact, the concept of money being compensation for labor is a very modern <laughs> invented concept as well. And so why did we allow some people to convert former wealth into money? And why can't, why do people start off at zero? Why can't you just say some people start off at this number? What, who can like, what's the, what's the deal? other than social ordering. And I think that's a very good thought experiment for most people to think about.
0: No, I think that's true. I mean, I think <clears throat> I think it's really hard for us to understand what money means. And I think we've been seeing some real mask off moments, right, when we saw, uh, for instance, Senator Lin- Lindsey Graham talking about, well, we can't give people you know, an extension of these bonus payments um, because they're making too much money. Yeah, well, there's some concept, as we were
1: saying, social ordering, some people Think the whip is more important, you know? A little bit of the whip, a little
0: bit of the carrot. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, we've been in a real mask off moment going back to what you were saying about Andrew Yang. I mean, when we heard Lindsey Graham and what's his name, Tim Scott, talking about the reason we couldn't give people increased unemployment or prolonged unemployment benefits is because another five to $600 a month would make it, would create an incentive for them not to work. You see it in the ways in which They know that people are living basically below subsistence. They're well aware of it. Yeah, and they're hoping that people are relying on, like, family networks or makeshift work to keep it surviving. It's it's not
1: really that. It's the new slavery, right? It's economic slavery. They know that if they pay people below subsistence, then people have to take out all of these super inefficient methods to get paid out, right? Mm -hmm. And so they end up spending proportionally more money into the system than someone that has capital. That's the big secret or not so secret thing about America, is America gets a lot cheaper for you once you have money. It's kind of- Well, all the fees start going away. All the fees go away, they start giving you money. They just start giving you stuff. Kind of fun, right? I mean, once you hit, I'm just gonna be honest, like once you hit a certain level, they start giving you things and incentivizing you to keep spending the money. But if you don't have any money, then they charge you for not having any money. It's, it's,
0: it's, so, going, yeah. it's I mean, it's like the airlines writ large, right? It's like if you have money, they start upgrading you to first class. They start giving you free food. Free drinks. They give you free stuff, free drinks. And then if you don't have any money, they're like, that Coca-Cola is going to be $5. Or to get an armrest that's going to be a $25 fee. Or to put your bag in the luggage compartment. That's $35.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you want more than two inches for your size 15 feet, then you better pay an extra 50 bucks a seat player because we can't help you with that. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, it's, it's straight punitive. I mean, the the big innovation since the 90s, honestly, of the both the tech community and of neoliberal marketing, it's something I learned uh, when I was doing uh, privacy research, is the Pareto Principle. They they've figured out this whole 80-20 rule where they can basically just tax the 80% much more than the 20 and make their profits that way and just pay for things. That's why they're just cutting taxes and taxing
0: t- taxing you on the uh, the back end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what we do know, I mean, we, we talk about it in economics all the time, right? We're like low-income people are really efficient uh, Keynesian agents because they spend every dollar, every cent that they take in. Correct, correct. But, but in and this... They won't say. But... But they've
1: kind of inverted that to some extent and that's why i personally believe the american economy is in serious trouble because consumer purchasing power has gone down as a share of the total economy and that's that's like as people go broke that's a
0: problem i mean it is or it requires us Or it could also be a reason when we think about geopolitics about why we've seen such um uncertainty or such unrest right because i guess for a long time the american consumer has been the backbone of the global economy but if we're forced to move from an american consumer into a into one where we assume the american consumer can't do that kind of support right we're forced to maybe play the kinds of roles that a china or a germany does where we're actually suppressing consumption at home
1: correct i think part of the confusion too that's arisen out of our globalist experiment right is whether or not these second tier countries that right that we used to call third world frankly they're not anymore whether or not they'd be able to purchase the products that they were producing right and we we thought the answer was going to be no we thought they wouldn't care for some reason like they would be sufficiently placated to not be part of this consumer market but they clearly have expressed that that's not true and that they want all the nice things as well and that they frankly would rather have an a, a cell phone before they get plumbing in most places. I mean, look at the cell phone penetration levels compared to just things like basic sanitation in places like India and South America. It's kind of crazy.
0: Well, I mean, the cell phone revolution, I think, has been so big. And the idea that the cell phones would become so cheap, right? I mean, who would have thought, right, that in what we consider to be um, lower income countries, you would have such high rates of cell phone and internet penetration, digital data, and that that would come before things like, you know, even wired telephones network or you know without like secure electrical supply and so you see in places like South Sudan right I had a grad student of mine come and telling me about one of his experiences and he was like you know the guy comes with uh, everyone in in this town has cell phones right but there's no electricity so how do people charge their cell phones Basically, someone comes on a motorbike that's been modified to be a power generator. That's badass. And at certain times during the market, they power everyone's cell phones, right? And then the guy comes back. And he's basically using petroleum or diesel to power everyone's cell phone. And so I think we've seen a, an incredible expansion in communication technology, too. And this means that people are also communicating in networks and ways in which um, the old system of kind of hubs and spokes doesn't work anymore. I mean, my dad always talks about in the in the '80s, the late '70s, '80s, when he used to call Belize, right? How did you call Belize? Basically, someone from the Belizean diaspora would try to get a job at at and and for like an hour or so during the during the week, he would have a hotline number, and people from the Belizean diaspora would be able to call into his hotline, where he would have plugged in directly to the at and lines, and people would be able to one hear the news or to maybe call their relatives or send messages to their relatives, and everybody in Belize would listen in, right? But it was only, like, one hour in which this communication was possible. And I think, you know, the expansion of cell phones, right, have created desires and markets in places that we thought um, could be completely ignored, right? So uh, one of my relatives was talking about, like, you know, her, friend, her friend's mom goes back to Yemen, And she feels she needs to have the new Botox, which means that people in Yemen also need to have the Botox too in order to go to tea parties. And so these things, right, these desires um, are spreading. Or I was in Dubai last time and we were at a party and, and one of my friends was saying, you know, I was thinking that, you know, Syria has been devastated for the last few years. And he was like, no, the sushi restaurants in Damascus are expanding faster than ever, right? It was like, it's better than ever. And this was like during the height of the war. And so I think, A lot of these things are this the appearance of this globalization has been very difficult i think for us as americans to to come to grasp with
1: yeah well we we market these things worldwide and we market our film and television worldwide we want all these things to be products but then we somehow expect people not to be curious about consuming these products i guess to me that's the funny part right like clearly yeah yeah clearly they're going to want this thing I mean, we're telling everyone it's the best thing in the world and we're spending billions of dollars to do
0: so. No, I think I think that's something that we've just been surprised about. And I think you're right. And I think we also sometimes forget that the rest of the world knows an awful lot more about us than we know about them. Like, Like I was just talking with some of my friends, like do we know anything really about like Indian politics? Like, we get, like, one or two highlights every month or so, right? In a major newspaper like the New York Times. But we don't know the intricacies of what's going on. Um, Or, like, how how much coverage is there about Africa in, like, something like the New York Times or the Washington Post. But when you go to these places, right, you find out that people are, like, really informed about the nitty-gritty of, like the american primary or uh we have friends in south africa and they call us all the time i mean sometimes their their views are a little bit skewed right like i would always joke that my european friends really thought that bernie sanders was going to win the primary and possibly the presidency or my friends in in southern africa are like obviously he's the only possible choice right (laughs) and so i think you know oh oh sweet sweet summer children what did you say
1: i said oh sweet sweet summer children You know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean I mean but the fact that they know primary candidates in another country is something that I don't know how many Americans know who's running in these other places, right? I mean, we're lucky if our presidential candidates can name the presidents in another country.
1: Well it's American exceptionalism. We don't care. They they require American dollars to operate, so they care. We feel that we don't require foreign currency at all to operate, which is mostly true. And Once again, we feel that their markets aren't that important to the success of our economy, which is becoming less and less true. Um, But we still feel this way. So as a result, we just don't pay attention, for the most part, unless you're a sophisticated actor, um, you don't pay attention to international politics. I mean, most Americans can't even find these countries on a map, Alden, much less, you know, pay attention to who their primary candidates are. I
0: mean, I I used to be confused about this whole idea that ISIS was gonna cross the southern border. You know, because kind of come across the Rio Grande. But then I realized that all these people think that Iraq is in Central America. I, I never forget when
1: you told me that and I, I called you a lie. I was like, you're a goddamn liar and there's no way. But then I <laughs> looked it up and you were right. It's like a significant, like more than half of people or something like that. I was like, oh, wow. How is that even possible? But I don't watch Fox News. So I, maybe sometimes that brain, whatever they're selling over there, you know, you you, make, you miss, the, miss the signal.
0: I mean... This brings me into another question that i wanted to ask you about but i didn't realize it but one of my colleagues was telling me he's like you know u.s foreign policy think tanks and all these places are are super white Mm. and like and i've been wondering one of the things i've been wondering about is like can you believe can you be a u.s foreign policy expert if you don't believe in american exceptionalism and a specific variety of american exceptionalism which is i suppose the superiority and i don't know if you would agree with this that american exceptionalism uh elides quickly into a belief in the superiority of euro-american civilization there's this idea that you know whites are better
1: oh i mean when um, when most americans speak of quote-unquote americans they mean johnny appleseed right they don't Right? I mean, they're not talking about you or me. They're talking about Johnny Apples. Paul Bunyan. Yeah, exactly. They're not, you know, even more so, I guess, some people, they're talking about Gordon Gecko. You know, they're talking about Wall Street types, if you want to be that. But I think very rarely, unless they're talking about entertainment or sports, frankly, do they really include minorities in the picture. Mm.
0: So you think Scarface, for instance, being white is important in the sense that he can be a real American, even though he's Scarface?
1: Well, the Cubans have their own sort of exceptionalism there, so that might be a whole different conversation. <laughs>
0: oh, that's true. I guess I forget about Scarface being Cuban. I'm just like, oh, he's Al Pacino.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, that's the point. Al Pacino played a Cuban, right? They can. So there's that, too, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it's like... Like an Al Pacino? Can Al Pacino holds-
1: play you? Well, that's one of the great questions out there. Yeah, I think that's, that's yeah, it's one of those questions. And, and so can, can you ever have an Al Pacino film that represents your people it's just an interesting way to look at it a lens you know
0: mm-hmm. but pushing it even further there's this question of like well you know the first woman one of the craziest things i've heard in the trump administration was the former uh counselor to the secretary of state who actually happened to be this african-american woman and she she talked about the china threat in the most explicit terms she said that china was our first non uh i think she said non-caucasian peer competitor and that that's the special threat that the Chinese pose to us. I mean, where do
1: you even start to address that statement?
0: <laughs> well, first I was like, it's crazy as an African-American woman who said this, but but maybe it's not crazy. So language, her language aside,
1: I mean, the, the central position is true, that part of what makes China an interesting challenge, I think for a lot of Americans right now, is that we feel that we cannot, and it's probably a true supposition, frankly, that we can't assimilate them. And, and so it presents a different type of challenge as opposed to previous challenges. So we don't feel that we can cross-culturally inseminate them, as we used to say, right? We don't feel like, we tried it, right? Like for, I don't think very well, I think we kind of tiptoed around the issue, but I think we've tried to export certain aspects of our culture to China. I mean, you ever seen China? I mean, they're very technologically advanced right now. Well, that's
0: one of the great arguments, right? Is modernization, in modernization here I mean, you know, uh, the adoption of advanced technologies, does that implicitly imply westernization?
1: No, but I think it might implicitly, at least initially, as these technologies are built out, apply, imply authoritarianism, which might be a more
0: concerning question for people to be on. Like, so the the new tech. But there are a number of problems, right? Like... I think you're right. I think you're on to something really important about the question of technology and authoritarianism, particularly the technologies that are becoming really powerful right now. And I don't know, I'm assuming you mean like, you know, cell phones, the expansion of the Internet, the development of 5G, uh, social media networks. All of that. But, But before we get there, I think another question is, and maybe maybe this is my own naivete, right? Is that I think, you know, I think one of the reasons that maybe people like me, you know, who perhaps have what I call I like to call the Sally Hemings dilemma, right? It's like, what exactly makes us, uh, I mean, I think of myself as an American, right? I think I was trained in elite institutions in the US, um, have bought into the norms and, and prospects of, of our culture. But if what you're saying is right, right, and that the problem is actually a problem of Caucasianness, then perhaps I, as an African-American, can never be fully American. You know, even as I rise through academia or the policy world, am I myself an outsider that's not fully assimilatable? Is assimilation racial? I mean, a little bit. Is it a project? I mean, kind of. So I was going to say, I mean,
1: you could have, if you wanted to, you could have had kids with a white girl probably. And then that would have, you know that probably would have half let you in the group,
0: not fully. So is it an intergenerational project? There's actually this, this author who's put out this question right now, this guy Thomas Chatterton Williams, has written this new book again uh, called Self-Portrait in Black and White, in which he tries to argue that, you know, himself being half black, half white, uh, moving to France, having a baby with a, a, French, a white French woman, who has blue eyes, he's like, you know, my child doesn't have to be black. Maybe there's an out here, an escape route. And then he tries to basically argue that black culture is pathological, right? That black culture is a grievance culture. And that, you know, I mean, it's a kind of conservative argument that you see often made about even people like Obama, right? You know, you get people like Newt Gingrich and who's the other guy, That that really conservative guy. They were like, you know, Obama's there's problem is that his father was a Mau Mau activist, and therefore he has an inherent um, uh, culture of grievance tied to him. So,
1: let me, I have a couple of things to say about this. So, first, my perspective on it's a little unique, because as you know, I'm, as my friends call, super extra Creole, right? So, as far as I'm concerned, aside from Native Americans, there's nothing more American than me in my people, right? So I actually don't have that alienation problem where I don't feel American. But there's a curious similarity between Thomas Chatterson Williams and our boy Obama and a lot of other people who think this way. And I guess they don't have the, as you call it, the intergenerational knowledge that I would argue as a Creole we know about the subject. They both had white mothers. And a lot of us view the world through the lens that we've been taught by our parents. Particularly your mother from a young age. And so I just throw that in as an asterisk to his perspective, right? Like maybe it's always a little different when your mom's white and you're black. And there's been a lot of discussion about this recently in the current culture about how white parents often treat their black children as accessories because they can't, they cannot fully understand it. And many of them don't even attempt to. And so it puts you in this weird middle state where who, how do you learn about your blackness? Do you reject your whiteness if your mother's white? It's very, it's, very, It's a different problem that I didn't have to deal with. Both of my parents, were subject to segregation, right? The, you know, so despite being fairer than probably this guy's parents, it's
0: an interesting question that you're raising, and it's one that I think is like my dad always says, right? That that those of us who he calls creoles, and he calls all of us creoles, basically most of us, he says that you know what's great about us is that we are the first New World people. You know, we are the people of the New World. Those of us who were mixed in the plantations of the South and in the Caribbean and throughout the continent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're the indigenous, or not the indigenous, but we've been created as a new people that never existed before. We're the, we're the genesis, right, of peoples in this new continent. That's
1: pretty, pretty,
0: very true. But then in that, you get this idea that, you know, people like Du Bois would say that, you know, they're actually blood relatives of people like Hamilton. And that, you know, they're all basically Creoles, right? It's just a question of which side of the black-white line did you fall on? Your family, basically. Uh, I mean... One could kind of argue that, but I'm
1: talking about a very specific cultural difference that was carved out in Louisiana. Louisiana Creoles are distinct from, I would say, the general Creole culture, both because of how we were treated during this period of slavery. There was an apartheid system in Louisiana when that wasn't in place in the rest of the country, right? And the fact that our rights, in some ways, were actually constricted after, because they were then lumped in with the general black population after Reconstruction and treated far less. Right, equally than they were before the period. So we have a very distinct type of racial memory and how you know these categories are rather fluid, frankly.
0: No, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, there's all sorts of categories, particularly categories of the 19th, 18th, 17th centuries that have both persisted into the 20th century and faded away, right? So like in the Indian constitution, you get these special seats for Anglo-Indian, but it's unclear what's happening to the Anglo-Indian population. It's in some ways, has shrunk so much. But I think you're right. I think you're onto something important, which is the idea that, you know, black and white, as we understand them now, are actually creations of the post-Reconstruction era, right? These are post-Civil War terms, and they're not as old as we often think they are. And in some ways, they mystify more distinctions than they reveal.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's painting with a broad brush, right? I mean, black wasn't really a thing until the 60s, right? Before, black and proud. Yeah, before we were all colored, right? We're colored people
0: interesting for the new phrase have you heard this new phrase that people are calling using b-i-p-o-c oh lord BIPOC no what does that mean black indigenous person of color why am i indi- why indigenous so it's the idea that you, if you want to talk about this broad range of people um you need to be more specific right we're not all black and we're not all indigenous and we're not all persons of color or maybe we are all persons of color but some of us are these other things as well and so we need to create more of a cluster term. I don't like this. <laughs> I didn't like it either. I honestly think everybody's black. Yeah, just call them black, man. Black is uh, call me black, call you black. black. Is, uh, call them all black. I think black is a political position, right? I mean, it's the deny. You know, I think it's very powerful in the sense, as the old
1: heads tell that whiteness me. Whiteness is a black is a brand, right? It's, it's, a, it's a brand.
0: Well, you also heard this idea that Black Lives Matter is a brand.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were telling, trying to tell me Black Lives, the older, some of my older, uh, over 60 you know, establishment type dems were trying to tell me that they don't really support Black Lives Matter because it's a brand, you know? Um, there was actually an interesting piece that came out today by Perry Bacon Jr. He talks about the seven competing camps in black politics. Did you check that out?
0: No, I haven't seen that.
1: You should check it out. He, uh, he kind of breaks them down into different groups, you know, the younger establishment, the older establishment. Younger anti-establishment, Obamaites, he calls them. Older anti-establishment.
0: Also, oh, Obamaites are a specific group.
1: Yeah, he calls Obamaites people like Stacey Abrams, uh, John A. Hayes, uh, Harris, Cory Booker. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's interesting, and he tries to finally express. I think it's an important thing to express that m- maybe Black political ideas aren't as monolithic as people think. And he. I don't think they've ever been monolithic.
0: Not at all. No, by no means. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty easy one. And, Are you saying that me and you often don't agree about everything? Yeah, re- really?
1: Re- uh, go figure, right? Um, <laughs> and he also surmises, uh, which, as I agree, that uh, we're going to see far more pro-Trump conservatives after this election.
0: So he thinks that Trump win or lose is not the end of Trumpism.
1: No, he, he seems to agree with us that, well, at least with me, that Trump is a symptom of the American system and not a problem per se. Whereas I think the popular, current popular bright no- song we're playing is that he's an, an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And if we get rid of Trump, then everything is going to go magically, we are going to be in Isles again, right? Or, mm-hmm. or Kansas,
0: mm-hmm. I guess Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been wishful thinking, right? I mean, I think it's been a great, I think I've been surprised by how useful a fairy tale it's been, but I think it's just that a fairy tale, right? I mean, I think one of the great surprises for me, at least, has been the success of the Biden campaign, non-campaign. And I think it's rested on exactly what you're saying, right? which is the political usefulness of the fairy tale that Trump is somehow an un-American disease that has infected the system rather than a product of the system, right? I mean, Trump is as American as apple pie. Trump is like the great Gatsby story, right? I mean, Trump is Gatsby. Well, that's why New Yorkers, like
1: the people I'll tell you who hate Trump the most, of anyone I know, are people from New York. Because they say he's he's like their own personal golem, right? He's, he's he both... Is so not like New York, and also everything about New York, all in
0: the same person. <laughs> I mean, what's more American than the real estate industry, right? And what's more central? I mean, I think this is a place where there's been great work by people like Adrian Brown and um, and um, uh, Kianga Yamahata Taylor on this question of real estate, right? And in the, in the role of real estate in race making and the role of real estate in local American politics, right? This kind of decentralized despotism that I think is at the heart of the American system. But I think you're right. And I think one of the great pieces for me in helping to understand Trump has been this article by Nils Gilman called "The uh, The Twin Insurgency, right? And he says that Trump is this perfect broker between what he calls the plutocratic insurgency, which is, you know, all these dudes like Jeff Bezos, who don't want to get their hands dirty, or Bill Gates, but they don't want to pay any taxes, and the underworld, right? And the ways in which the kind of uh, tax sheltering that we design for corporations feeds into this kind of larger black market underworld. And you see it coming together in things like uh, Trump, right? The Trump Organization, which, you know, builds luxury condos for the Russian mob or any other mob that wants to take it up? Uh,
1: I, I think it's more of an offshoot of a slow evolution that's been happening from the 70s in terms of how capital's been coded. You know, I've been reading your girl uh, Katharina Pister is the code of capital. <sighs> and she basically argues that one of the biggest developments in the 20th century in general, I mean, before then as well, but particularly in the 20th century, is how much legal structure got created to protect holdings and how those people... Who understood these legal structures and took advantage of them, fared far better than those who did not. And that's really what we're seeing now is that people that just have this level of sophistication. I mean, if you have a group of, there's a very small group of tax attorneys that are probably much better than the rest.
0: And if you have access to these guys nowadays, I mean, you're flying high. You really are. Well, I mean, wasn't that Trump's big breakthrough when he lost a billion dollars, but then used the tax write-off for the next ten years? I mean, the sort of foundational question of his family fortune. Right, he was able to receive his inheritance without paying any taxes and actually get paid. I know you to mean receive his inheritance. I mean, you know, I don't really
1: fuck with dude, but I mean, I was like, that's pretty impressive. I can see why someone would find that impressive. Even if you believe in taxes as heavily as my socialist ass, you're gonna be, you're gonna be like, that's pretty. That's pretty
0: slick. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you're saying that if you're going to be a pirate, you better, well, fly the pirate flag, right? I mean, you got to fly the ship. Fly it high. Jolly Roger, baby it's like what they said about saint Clair drake i mean what's his name not Saint claire drake uh sir drake when he returned to england right and he and he dropped you know he had like rounded up the spanish armandas all up and down south america just robbing shit in violation of all sorts of treaties and people were kind of worried when he finally made it back right i mean he circled around navigated the whole world finally made it back to london and there were some questions about whether or not he was going to be turned over to the spanish and then he dropped his pound of gold and the queen was like, we're Gucci. Oh, yeah. We'd be good now. No worries. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be pirates, you might as well be a pirate, right? Bottom line's always the I mean,
1: bottom line. That's what we've learned.
0: I think that in some ways, I think, what do you call it? I don't think there's so much of disagreement, right? I think perhaps maybe somebody like Nils is, is taking too much of a, a, a status quo line. I mean, I think he's trying to say that basically perhaps we've moved too far into the pirate ship. Like, what does it mean for the preeminent power in the world to be a pirate? Well, he actually has one line in his in that
1: article that kind of nails it. He says, "What both insurgencies represent as a replacement of the liberal ideal of uniform authority and rights within national spaces by a kaleidoscopic array of de facto and even de jure micro-sovereignties. End quote. Mm. So I think that's kind of the big, that captures really what's going on is they're trying to break things down and instead of having this you know, people are tired of big government, you know, the, the regulatory state. That's the main thing Trump's been attacking, right? The bureaucracy mm. and the regulatory state. If you're going to be a pirate, like I'm saying, that
0: what, what's the main thing you don't want? Someone that can tell you what to do. I guess in a way they've been selling this dream, right? I mean, we saw, a, we saw an extreme and disgusting version of it with Jeff Epstein, right? But what was he selling? He was selling you the idea that if you paid him, You could go into his spaces, private spaces, right? You know, his big mansion in Manhattan or his island in the Caribbean, and you could go into a space that was essentially lawless, right? Or where the law was whatever you guys had decided. Or Trump just got in trouble for tweeting out that white power, you know, video in which, where is it? It's this place called The Villages in Florida, right? This nursing home. And and basically these are semi-private spaces, right? This idea that you can create or that you should be able to create private clubs, private places. Even the photo with, you know, uh, the two dudes in St. Louis, the I, wife and man. The I call it a private street. Yeah, I call them Guns and Rosé. Yeah. Guns and Rosé, <laughs> yeah. Or even our girl Nancy Pelosi, she lives on a private street. And so you're kind of like, mm, maybe it's coming from all sides.